Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a series of programs on the subject of the arrest and the trials of the Lord Jesus, and today's program is a continuation of the previous broadcast. In the previous broadcast, I was explaining that the chief priests, the elders and the Pharisees, the people who were conspiring against the Lord Jesus, made a decision not to arrest him or to try and hold a trial during the Passover, during the festival there, because he had prophesied that he was going to die on the Passover. This prophecy was given in Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 and 2. And so because he proclaimed this prophecy... They got together and they made an agreement with each other that they were not going to have him arrested during the festival, otherwise there would be an uproar among the people. The reason why I believe there would be an uproar among the people is because he said that he was going to be crucified on a certain day, and if that happens, then he is going to be validated as a prophet. This is also an opportunity for them to invalidate him as a prophet because if he's not arrested and he's not crucified two days after he made the claim, then they can validate the notion that he is a false prophet because what he claimed would take place did not happen. And so this was the situation. Now they conspired with Judas in order to locate him so he could be arrested In addition to locating Jesus, Judas would have a number of other responsibilities. The first, of course, would be that he would have to testify before the Romans that Jesus was guilty of violating Roman law. Then he would be able to obtain a cohort of Roman soldiers who he would lead to where Jesus could be found. They would arrest him, and then Judas would have to testify at his trial before the Romans that he was guilty of a crime according to Roman law, and then, of course, Jesus would be crucified. This was the agreement that Judas would have before the chief priests and the elders who were conspiring against the Lord Jesus. But of course, in order to fulfill this, he would also have to agree that he would not betray the Lord Jesus too soon, otherwise he could be arrested and crucified on the day that he claimed that he would be arrested and crucified. So Judas would have this responsibility, and they paid him 30 pieces of silver in order to fulfill this responsibility. And I was explaining all the details surrounding that in the previous program. In today's program, I would like to continue with this and show you that even though there was a conspiracy to have Jesus captured, arrested, and crucified, and the conspirators agreed that they would not let this happen on the Passover, which was when Jesus said this would happen, Even though they had conspired to try to ensure that this would not take place, Jesus made it happen anyway. What Jesus claimed was going to come to pass. And the way that he accomplished this was by exposing Judas. That was how he accomplished this. He exposed Judas as being the person who would betray him, and so Judas would have to act quickly if he was going to follow through with what he agreed to do. Otherwise, Jesus may not give him another opportunity, because if Jesus knows that Judas conspired to betray him, 
then Judas would no longer be considered to be part of the inner circle of the disciples, and he might find it difficult to locate the Lord Jesus so that he can direct the Roman cohort to where they could find the Lord Jesus and arrest him. And so this was the situation at hand, that Jesus exposed the conspiracy and exposed Judas, and so they had to act right away. They had to act right away, and when they acted was on the Passover. That was what happened. But, of course, because they had to act on a night that they were not prepared, they had to act quickly. They were not very well organized. This was revealed very well by their actions and by what they were trying to do during the trial when the Lord Jesus was before the Sanhedrin, that they were not very well organized, which makes perfect sense, because if they had to act on a night that they were not prepared to act, then they certainly would not be prepared to act. And in the testimony that we have in the New Testament, this confusion is certainly very well documented. Now, the Lord Jesus exposed the conspiracy when they were all having the Passover meal. And this was described in John chapter 13, verses 21 to 30. And so I'd like to begin in John chapter 13, verse 21, where it says, When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered that it is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, there's something very important that I want to point out here, and that is that they did not know that one of them was going to betray the Lord Jesus. They didn't know that. The only person who knew that was, of course, Judas and the Lord Jesus. And so Jesus decides to notify them. He tells them that there is one person there who is going to betray him, and they had no idea who it was or who it could be. And so Peter prompted another disciple to ask him, who it was, and Jesus showed them who it was. It was at this time that Jesus exposed Judas as being the one who was going to betray him. Now, please understand that these disciples had spent a lot of time together. They were together for many years. They walked together. They talked together. They shared their lives with each other. They committed themselves to one another. And so for them to consider that one of them was going to betray Jesus was just something that was difficult for them to embrace, difficult for them to understand. And so even when Jesus revealed who it was, they still didn't get it right away. They still didn't understand. They didn't really believe. I I personally don't think that they really believed that Judas would actually be the one who would betray the Lord Jesus. I mean, if you consider the position that Judas held there with the disciples, he was the one who was responsible for the money. I mean, if they were going to trust anyone, they would definitely trust him with the money. That was how they looked at Judas Iscariot, as someone who was so trustworthy, who was so committed to the cause, committed to what the Lord Jesus was doing, what he was presenting, that they would trust him with all of the money for the group. 
That was how they viewed Judas. In fact, there has been some research done that suggests that Judas was probably considered to be a zealot, that he was an individual who really wanted to see the Messiah come to power, and he really wanted to see the Messiah overthrow the Romans, which would be very consistent with what I presented earlier concerning why he would betray the Lord Jesus. What motive would he truly have that was different from what was expressed? Because, of course, when he discovered that Jesus was not going to resist, he had a change of heart, he had a change of attitude, and did some things that we would not have expected of somebody who was intentionally, directly wanting to betray someone else. Continuing in John chapter 13, verse 27, it says, After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him, for some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Now, please understand that Jesus told the disciple who was next to him that he was going to dip a morsel and he was going to give it to the person who was going to betray him. Obviously, this person was close enough to him that he would be able to give it to him, which means that he was probably close enough to hear what the Lord Jesus was saying to this other disciple, which means that Judas would know, he would know, that he was exposed. I personally believe that there were others who probably heard this exchange. At least the person who Jesus spoke to was then going to tell Peter. And considering that, at least two people were aware that Jesus said Judas was going to betray him. And so I believe that given this situation, there were a couple of things that were going on. The first thing was, was that Jesus definitely exposed Judas. The second thing was that there would probably be a delayed reaction because of the uncertainty surrounding the circumstances. I mean, Jesus just identified Judas as somebody who was going to betray them, but he was one of their most trusted individuals there. And so I think they would have a hard time processing that very quickly. Judas, on the other hand, would know exactly what Jesus was talking about. And so considering the exposure that took place, he knew that he had a very limited amount of time to get out of there before the disciples, the other disciples, processed what Jesus just said and did, and then confronted him over this issue. So he needed to get out of there right away. Jesus provided him with the opportunity and let him go. And after he left, the disciples made an assumption that was contrary, that was different from what Jesus openly just said. They didn't follow up after Judas left by asking him again, who is it, who is it, who is it, until Jesus officially declared who it was, They knew, they heard him say that somebody was going to betray him, and they saw the evidence that he gave to show exactly who it was. They just didn't believe it. They just couldn't handle it. They couldn't process it. They couldn't deal with that at that time. It would take some time for them to realize the seriousness of the situation. Jesus gave Judas a way out. Judas left. He left, and where did he go? He went to the chief priests, he went to the elders, he went to the people who he conspired with, and he informed them, hey, the plan needs to change, because Jesus knows that I am going to betray him. That's what Judas would say. Judas would tell them that Jesus knows, and he has publicly told the disciples that Judas is the one who is going to betray them. Told them right there at dinner. And so if they're going to act, they're going to have to do it now. 
because Jesus now has the opportunity to change his location. He has the opportunity to leave. He has the opportunity to go into hiding somewhere else that perhaps Judas would not know of. They're going to have to act right away. Otherwise, they're going to lose their opportunity to be able to capture the Lord Jesus. Because remember, one of the important tasks that Judas had was to lead the Roman cohort to the Lord Jesus so they would know where he was, so they could arrest him. He had to identify the Lord Jesus for them so they would be able to execute the arrest and then a trial would take place after that. And he would have to testify at the trial. But time is up. They are going to have to act, and they are going to have to act right now, which is why I believe they did act right away, and they acted even though they were completely disorganized. And so Judas would eventually go to the Romans. He would make his accusation. A detachment of troops would be given to him who would follow him to where the Lord Jesus was located. The accusation, of course, would be sedition. The detachment of troops was described as a Roman cohort, which was composed of 300 to 600 heavily armed men who would then be following Judas. Judas would lead them to the Lord Jesus. He would identify the Lord Jesus, and he told them that he would identify Jesus by kissing him. In that way, they would know exactly who Jesus was. They would arrest him, take him back to the Roman compound, and a trial would take place that would, of course, result in crucifixion if he was found guilty of sedition. And so at this time, I'd like to describe the arrest. The arrest of the Lord Jesus is described in John chapter 18. In John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoke these words, he had a lot of things to say between John chapter 13 and John chapter 18, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons." So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these go their way, to fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. And then Simon Peter executes a Jewish Rambo, which I'll come back to later. First of all, I'd like to explain some of the things that are happening here that I think are very easy to miss. It's very easy to miss a number of things, and so I'd like to go over this again and explain to you what is really taking place here. Now, first of all, you need to understand that we're talking about 300 to 600 heavily armed men. And in addition to that, we've got officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And when we look at parallel passages, we'll discover that chief priests were there, Elders were there, a lot of people were there, and they were all inside this garden. Now, this garden is not that big. To hold a minimum of 300 people would mean that there was very little space left over. I mean, there were a lot of people who were in this relatively small area. A lot of people were here. They came with lanterns, torches, and weapons, which tells you a number of things. 
The first thing that this tells you is that they're coming at night, which means there is an arrest that is taking place at night. And this is in violation of the laws of the Sanhedrin. The laws of the Sanhedrin state very clearly that there was never to be an arrest at night. And the reason for this was to ensure that there would never be any secret arrests. This was very important to make sure that whenever there were any proceedings that had to do with arresting an individual or holding them on trial, that all of this would be done in public. Nothing was to be done in secret. And so for this arrest to take place in the evening, this was in direct violation of the laws of the Sanhedrin. And the chief priests and the Pharisees, they are participating in this, giving their endorsement of this, suggesting that they are okay with this, which means that they are also in violation of their own laws governing the arrest of an individual for whatever crime they might have committed. The other thing that is expressed here is the notion that they have weapons. Now, these weapons that they have are heavy weapons. These are the kinds of weapons that they would take into battle with them in the event that they are going against another army. Consider the implications of arresting the Lord Jesus. If the Lord Jesus is the head of a movement that is wanting to overthrow the Romans, then they could very well expect that they are going to have a battle on their hands. And so these folks were heavily armed. Now, you've got all of these people who are heavily armed, and Jesus asks them directly, who are you looking for? In verse 5, they answered him and said, Jesus the Nazarene, and he said to them, I am he. Now, when he says, I am he, in verse 6, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, please don't just read past this. Consider the seriousness of this and what's being expressed. You have 300 to 600 heavily armed men approaching the Lord Jesus, preparing to engage in a major battle because this person is supposedly guilty of sedition and therefore has the potential to wage war against them. All of these men are coming to arrest him. He doesn't have any weapons. He's not armed. But still, they come to arrest him. He asks them who they are looking for. They say, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene. And he says, I am he, and they all fall to the ground. Now, what would cause all of these men who are prepared for battle, who are prepared to engage in a major conflict, what would cause them to fall to the ground? Just the fact that he says, I am he? Just because he confesses to them that he's the one who they are looking for? No, there is something else that is here. It turns out that this phrase, I am he, really means I am the living God. That's really what he said. In the second I am, he says, I am Jesus, the one that you are looking for. But this first I am he is a declaration that he is the living God. It was a phrase that is exclusive to suggest that he is not just Jesus, but he is the true and living God. And in what way this reached their ears, we don't have enough information to determine. But one thing I can suggest, and that is that when he spoke these words, there was some divine intervention of some kind. And I don't know if this is sonic resonance or what it might be, but there was an intervention. There was definitely divine intervention that was taking place here that through his words, these people were shaken to such an extent that they fell to the ground. 
That is what is taking place here, and it's very easy to read past this and not pay attention to the seriousness of what's taking place here. So everyone hits the ground in this small garden that is filled with soldiers. Therefore, he asked them again. He asked them again. Well, of course, I assume they are recovering from what just happened. I mean, if you hit the ground, wouldn't you expect there would be a moment when you'd get up, you know, maybe dust your knees off a little bit, get your weapons together that you might have dropped while you were falling to the ground? Something like that. There may be a little bit of a delay. But he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And then in verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he which tells me that he is making a clear statement that not only is he the man Jesus, but he is also the living God who has manifested in the flesh, who manifested in the flesh and dwelt among us as a person so that he could personally speak to us, live with us, direct us to the truth. Continuing in verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these go their way. Are they going to argue with him? I mean, consider this person who is standing there, who just by the word that he gave, everyone hit the ground. You think they're going to argue with him after that? He says, go ahead and take me, but let these people go. Because they are there just to arrest the Lord Jesus, I think they would find it very easy to just let the other people go. They were following his instructions. They were following his directions. He was making it very clear that they were not going to arrest him by force because he put them all on the ground just by his word. He was going to allow them to arrest him, but in the process, he told them to let the others go. In verse 9, to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Now, there's an important parallel passage to the circumstances that we have here, and that is found in Matthew chapter 26, verse 48. Matthew chapter 26, verse 48. Also, another one in Mark chapter 14, verse 44, and also in Luke chapter 22, verse 47 and 48. But what I'm going to refer to is the one in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 26, Verse 48, it says, Now he who was betraying him gave him a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. So there was this additional situation that was taking place after Jesus declared that he was the one they were looking for. And this is very important. You need to understand that a person was not normally arrested just by their own testimony. There had to be a witness against the individual. And the reason why was because they could have arrested the wrong person by mistake. The detachment of troops were following Judas, and Judas was going to show them who the Lord Jesus was so that they could arrest the Lord Jesus. But one of his disciples might try to impersonate the Lord Jesus so that Jesus would have an opportunity to escape. Somebody else, one of his disciples, as an example, could have said, I am the one you are looking for, and that would have given Jesus an opportunity to escape. So Judas had a very important role here, and that was to identify the Lord Jesus, even if the Lord Jesus confessed that he was the one that they were looking for. Judas told them that whoever he kissed, that was the one that they were to seize. 
Now, the word kiss that is used here can be a little bit deceiving because the word that was used in the original language implies a different kind of kissing than just a single kiss. It was actually quite common for a disciple to greet their rabbi with a kiss. This would not be anything unusual. And so for Judas to kiss the Lord Jesus would not have been unusual in the culture as a greeting that a disciple would present to their rabbi in order to express two things. The first thing that would be expressed by this would be submission, that the disciple is submitting themselves to their rabbi. And the second thing that is expressed here is their appreciation for what the rabbi has taught them in the past and what the rabbi will teach them in the future. It was an expression of thankfulness. And so there would be nothing unusual about Judas going to the Lord Jesus and giving him a kiss as an expression of a greeting. That would have been expected to a certain degree. So for Judas to tell the Romans that he's going to identify his rabbi with a kiss, well, of course he would. There would be nothing out of the ordinary for that to take place. Jesus would not be asking him, why are you doing this? Is this like your special sign to show them that I am the one that they are looking for? That question would not have been presented because there's nothing unusual here. However, there is something that is unusual here, and that is described in the original language. And that is that he did not just kiss him once, but that he kissed him multiple times. He kissed him many times in this one event of greeting his rabbi. That was not considered to be acceptable. To kiss him once is considered to be acceptable, but to kiss him multiple times was to show disrespect to his rabbi, not respect to his rabbi. And so there is a distinction here that I wanted to mention in order to give you some greater insights concerning the way that Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus. It was then that they seized the Lord Jesus. Now, please keep in mind that I believe that Judas was doing this so that he would create the situation such that Jesus would have no alternative but to resist. So I don't believe that these multiple kisses were necessarily his way of saying, I hate you in some way. I believe that he was doing this to assert himself as being greater than the Lord Jesus in this one circumstance. And what I mean by greater is to say that he was the one who was going to take control of the situation at hand and put Jesus in a position where he would have to be the messianic king that everybody thought that he was. And I will continue with this in the next program. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net